welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Morning Church, you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Well, this morning we're going to finish, Lord willing, this first letter of Paul to Timothy. It's been a joy to focus with you on the responsibility and beauty of God's church described in this letter. But I will say, after studying this letter, there can be no denying that we have a responsibility to hold high the name of Jesus and the message of salvation through Him. We are responsible to be a pillar for the truth in this fallen world. But this letter also helps us see the beauty of a healthy and fully functional church. Even though we are somewhat a, a somewhat random group of individuals, at least that's what it seems like sometimes, and we may have nothing on this earth in common, when we come together, though, in unity around our Lord and Savior, then we together become beautiful because we are beginning to look like Him together. Last week we focused specifically on how the church displays the beauty of our Lord through godliness with contentment. It is a beautiful thing when an entire church as one live and speak the words, it is enough to know Him and to live for Him. It is enough. Not only will this declaration of heart and life bring great gain in the kingdom of God to come, but it will also give us abundant life in the here and now. This is another one of those mysteries of Christianity, that those who lose their lives for Christ's sake are the only ones who find their life in the end. Last week we also saw the dangers of trying to save your earthly life, the danger of pursuing after the things of this world, the things this world promises will be more satisfying than losing your life for Christ. There were church members, teachers of the law, and maybe even some church elders in Ephesus who had been drawn away from faithful service to God by the appeal of wealth, fame, power, and control. These people were disrupting the church and leading people astray, all for the sake of filling their hands with the stuff of this world. They were willing to sell their souls for the sake of gaining the world. In our closing passage today, Paul pleads with his younger co-worker in the faith, Timothy, to remain faithful to his king, to stand up and fight the good fight of the faith. Let's look in, our, in the word at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, and we will also look at verses 20 through 21 today in closing. Verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained, and free from reproach 
until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then in verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless his word this morning to us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the privilege to gather here this morning in peace. I thank you for my brothers and sisters gathered with me here today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each one of us, that if we're coming here today feeling a bit cold in heart, maybe distracted just by this world that comes at us, if we are not feeling like being here or we're not feeling like hearing your word, Lord, I pray that you would forgive our weaknesses our frailty, and that your spirit that you have so graciously given, that it would fill us with hope and joy and peace and confidence, faith in what you are doing and that you will accomplish in us and through us. Lord, would you use your words to do this in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we studied last week, Verse 10 tells us that some Christians had wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs in their pursuit of the stuff of this world. But in verse 11, Paul changes direction and with great passion pleads with his younger brother in the faith, challenging him to reject the folly of those who had wandered away from the truth. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. This phrase, man of God, would have stirred a clear image in Timothy's mind of faithful Old Testament prophets. This title was given to men who served as God's representatives, men such as Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, and others. In this narrow sense, a man of God was someone who God appointed to deliver his words. These men were not perfect, but the testimony of their life pointed to the fact that they knew God heard God's voice, and were empowered by the Spirit of God to proclaim God's words. It is significant for us, though, that Paul uses this title to describe Timothy, because Timothy represents the ongoing ministry of this age, the church age. Timothy was not one of the original apostles, not a writer of Scripture, and we are not told that Timothy was uniquely given revelation. Instead, Timothy represents those who proclaim the words of God as those words have been handed down to them. Timothy is the clearest example we have of a New Testament believer who receives the written words of God and then faithfully declares that message. For that reason, it is significant that Paul calls him a man of God. Because Timothy, in many ways, represents the ordinary believer who is called and appointed to proclaim the words of God. Paul uses this phrase one other time in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17. through 17. He again says to Timothy in another letter, 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now it is true that these words are spoken to a leader in a local church and to a teacher of the words of God. It would be wrong to downplay the importance of these words uh, to those who lead and teach God's people. But the beauty of the new covenant in Christ Jesus is that now all the people of God know God, hear God's voice through His written words, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be His messengers to the world around us. One of the wonders of the church age that we live in now is that God has not chosen to pick out five or six holy men to represent him before this rebellious world. Instead, he has ordained that each and every Christian have the ability to know him personally, hear his voice in the word, and be empowered by, to serve through the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that every Christian must become a traveling evangelist or a pastor. You can take that burden off your shoulders if you don't feel called to do that. Instead, each one of us is to live according to the grace and gifting that God has given to you. This means that a man of God could be a Christian farmer in our community. Because he knows God, he hears God's voice through the scriptures, and he speaks God's words faithfully to his wife, children, friends, and neighbors. This also means that women can be women of God. Since they can also know God personally, they don't need a mediator other than Jesus Christ. They can hear God's voice through the scriptures and speak God's words to their children, family, friends, and neighbors as well. We are all God's representatives. His messengers to a lost and dying world. This is not just a mission for a select few. We are all given the privilege and the responsibility of being God's men and women. But the question must be asked, what kind of represent, representatives are we? Are you faithful? Am I sold out for God? Are we men and women of God, or do we look more like people of the world? Are we standing firm, ready for battle, wearing the armor of God that we have heard so much about in Ephesians? Or do we look more like prisoners of war who have dropped our spiritual weapons and given up the fight? No matter where you find yourself this morning, there is hope for every child of God. Because God is gracious and kind to his children and can raise you up to fight the good fight again if you will turn to him in humility. In our passage this morning, Paul speaks several key words to encourage and instruct his men and women. In verse 11 and in verse 20, we see that there are things that we must flee and avoid. First, in verse 11, we see that Timothy must flee these things. As we look back on our passage from last week, we see that the desire to be rich, the love of money, and the craving for wealth drag people down into destruction and ruin. 
The Christian who says in his heart, I will be rich, steps onto a path that leads to pain, misery, sorrow, and ultimately eternal loss. The craving for the possessions of this world cannot have a place in the heart of God's messengers. Especially wicked in the sight of God is the practice of using religion as a platform to prey on the poor. There were the religious gurus who did this in Jesus' day, taking even the widow's house from her in order to line their pockets and live in luxury. Later, there were false teachers in Ephesus who thought that they could use the name of Jesus as a means to wealth. There was a time in the 1500s when the Catholic Church went on a fundraising campaign, promising less suffering in a place they called purgatory if money was given to the church. And over the past 100 years, we have seen the commercialization of Christianity. The prosperity gospel proclaims in one way or another that Jesus died so that you can be rich. And they're not talking about spiritual reward or heavenly joy with their God. They're talking about boats, cars, houses, and money in your pockets. That's what they're talking about. Faith healers travel the world filling stadiums full of people promising God's miraculous healing and prosperity now if you will give them your paycheck. This most recent twisting of the truth preys on the poorest of society just like casinos do for the national lottery. How could the man of God who is God's messenger, how could he have anything to do with this craving for wealth or the exploiting of the poor? Paul pleads with Timothy to flee these things. Do not let the love of money have a single piece of your heart because it leads to those things we just talked about. Have nothing to do with them. Denounce them. Reject the lies of the devil. Pick up your heart and run from these wicked desires. And deeds. Paul also warns Timothy in verse 20, 20, telling him to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. It seems clear that the church in Ephesus was plagued by theologians who claimed to be men of God, but who did not even know God. Because when they heard God's voice through his words, they rejected it and then came up with their own. Even in the first century, when, I, when the eyewitnesses of Christ were still alive, there was already those who craved for something more than the simple gospel. The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's always been those who offered a new and improved gospel. Because the human heart wants to believe that it can save itself. It wants to believe it can make itself worthy of saving. People say, yes, you do need Jesus, but you also need a pilgrimage to a shrine in the Middle East. Yes, you do need Jesus, but secret knowledge that only I can give you is the real ticket to a higher plane of spiritual experience. They also say, yes, you do need Jesus, but you also need Mary and the other saints Holy men to be your mediator, medallions around your neck, 
crosses on the wall, holy water water sprinkled on you, and all the other bells and smells. Throughout this letter, it's been made clear that there will be those who are dissatisfied with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul warns Timothy to avoid, to reject this false knowledge because adding to or taking away from the gospel is not a light matter. It is not a small thing to get creative with God's words. Paul says in verse 21 that those who profess these things have swerved from the faith. They may have uh, appeared to be running well, these people who claim to be believers. They appeared to be soldiers on mission, traveling down the king's highway with with the eternal kingdom in their sights, but this false knowledge attracted the craving of their heart to be their own savior. And they left the king's highway to head down the path of deception. And now their only hope is to repent of allowing their heart to be led astray and return to the true path. Thankfully, the people of God are not only supposed to flee and avoid certain things, but God has graciously given us things also to pursue in order to become more like His Son. It is essential for the Christian life that we are always putting off the old man, but also putting on the new man. It doesn't matter if you are a grandparent with most of your life behind you, a Christian is always confessing sin and growing in Christ-likeness. Our relationship with God and others must have a climbing trajectory. It doesn't mean that people will always like you, They may even hate you more and more because of your growing faith. But even though some grow in hatred towards you, a Christian will grow in love for God and others. As you think about your relationship with God and your relationship with others, do these relationships have a positive trajectory? Because you continue to confess sin, and pursue God to this very day? It is not enough to look back to some day 40 years ago when you got saved. When you said a prayer, it is not enough. The Christian is someone who continues in growth, not someone who looks back to a prayer in the past. Paul pleads with Timothy to flee evil desires and to pursue these things. Looking back at our passage, he says, pursue righteousness, which is God's holy standard, which you can now live out because Christ lives in you. Godliness, the accurate understanding of who God is that drives me to live a righteous and devoted life before God. Faith, the firm and strong conviction that God is who He says He is, and that He will accomplish what He has promised. Love, which is the Greek word agape, the sacrificial and deep affection for God and neighbor that is only possible because of the Spirit of God within us. Steadfastness, which is endurance or inward fortitude, 
This is required of all those who would follow Christ because the road is often long and difficult. And gentleness. Applying only the force necessary for every situation. Often willing to give up your own way for the sake of another, even though you may have had the power and the right to demand your own way. We are all called to pursue these things. In verse 12, Paul goes on to reveal the imagery that must be filling his mind. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. The Old Testament is full of great warriors for God who destroyed enemy cities, put pagan armies to flight, and conquered wicked kingdoms as they fought the good fight of the faith. <clears throat> the people of God in the Old Testament were fighting for the ability to worship God and serve Him in peace and rest. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, he revealed that the kingdom in Jerusalem was only a shadow of the peace and rest that God had planned for his people. Jesus Christ revealed that his people were no longer to fight pagan armies for the sake of establishing his kingdom. Instead, our fight is against the spiritual forces of darkness. And we fight for a kingdom that is unlike any other in this world. Before his crucifixion, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We cannot fight for the kingdom of God with swords and spears. Instead, we fight for this kingdom with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Christians fight the good fight of the faith by rejecting the delicacies offered to us by the king of this world and by choosing to conquer our enemies by living and speaking the truth in love. Paul continues by telling Timothy to take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. To take hold of something is to seize or to grasp and then cling to in order to make it your own. Paul isn't imagining here walking hand in hand with Jesus on the beach. That's not what he's talking about. He is putting into Timothy's mind something more like how Jacob wrestled with a heavenly messenger all night, refusing to let go. He clung to him. Every Christian who would have abundant life now and for eternity must cling to the reality that we are living for the kingdom of God. We must, not, we must empty our hands of every other distraction so that we can grasp onto God's kingdom with two hands, with both hands, making it our own. Remembering always that God has graciously called us and brought us into his kingdom. And that we have publicly professed him as Lord and the one and only Savior. These are not just Christian ideas that we can sit around talking about over coffee. 
These are instead the realities that we cling to for eternal life. In verse 13, Paul again uses military language by saying, I charge you. What follows is a command. Timothy again is being commissioned or being given orders, and Paul adds the following words to express the significance and the urgency of Timothy's orders. He says that these orders are given in the presence of God. God is present and he sees all. Now this could be frightening to an unfaithful or lazy soldier. But for the soldier whose only goal is to carry out the desire of his commander, these are words of great encouragement. Imagine a lieutenant, which is the lowest level of officer, let's just say that, lowest level of officer who leads soldiers. So imagine a lieutenant who says to a group of his soldiers, things are kind of, things are kind of slow today, so I want you all to go down to the motor pool and shovel all the snow out of the road. A motor pool, think about where they park all the vehicles. Think about like the largest spar parking lot you can think of. That's a motor pool. Bunch of cars, lots of parking. Now when a lieutenant, who's typically 22, 23, 24, tells a bunch of old gnarly soldiers to go shovel snow, you know, it doesn't always go well. This kind of order typically receives a lot of pushback, and a lieutenant might even think twice before ever giving or saying such a thing. But imagine the difference if the unit commander ordered that all the snow be removed from the road before everyone went home that day. It gives a lot more confidence to the lieutenant if he is able to walk up to his men and say, the commander has ordered that the snow be removed. Let's get it done. There's still going to be some complaining as everyone walks away, but everyone does go out and shovel snow anyway. But now imagine the commander orders that all the snow be removed and then walks down to the formation to the formation of men with his lieutenant, standing behind the lieutenant as he directs his men to shovel the snow. With the commander present, the soldiers jump into action. Not a single grumble is heard and every person moves with purpose. Not because of the lieutenant but because the commander's authority rests with him. He's behind him. The lieutenant that clearly understands his commander's orders and who knows without a doubt that his commander is with him and for him, this person has great confidence in his task. This is why Paul reminds Timothy that these are God's orders and that God is with him. He is present with him. And, th- and, this is, and this God is not any God, any God, excuse me. He is the God who gives life to all things. He created all things. In Him all things are sustained, and in Him every Christian will find eternal life, even though their earthly body may be killed. Paul also reminds Timothy that Christ Jesus is also with him, and that Jesus has already gone before him. 
Paul charges Timothy in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Timothy, as a soldier for God's kingdom, can take courage that his Lord, Christ Jesus, has already walked the path of faithfulness before him. And that even before Pontius Pilate, the most powerful ruler in all Jerusalem who could release or crucify Jesus, even before this ruler, Jesus sealed his own faith, fate and made the good confession that he is the promised king of Israel. With these powerful reminders, Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. It was Timothy's responsibility to ensure that nothing in his own life or in the life in the church in Ephesus would be allowed to bring dishonor upon the clear teaching and reputation of God's word. This was Timothy's responsibility because he had been called and appointed to lead and teach the church in Ephesus, but this is not only a commissioning for the elders of a local church. God calls us all to ensure that nothing in our own lives or in the life of our church, that nothing in our family's life or the way we interact in our own homes, that nothing would be allowed to bring dishonor upon the clear teaching, the testimony, and the reputation of God's words. Paul echoes this charge in verse 20 when he says, O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you to keep and guard the very commands of God is our sacred duty as Christians. We cannot allow any desire, lie of the devil, or new knowledge to lead us astray from living and proclaiming the truth of God. But Christianity's fight for the truth and the battle with the flesh has an end in sight. If we were left here without hope, with no help, or without an end in sight to the battle, then we would most likely lose heart. But Paul reminds Timothy that the battles that rage will come to an end at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back, and this time he will not return as the suffering servant. This time he will return as the king who brings all rebellion to an end and clothes his faithful servants in his honor and glory. Too often our love grows cold. And we get comfortable here on this earth as if our Lord is not really returning. But the soldier who daily reminds himself and tells the story to others of the Prince of Peace who came to the battlefront at the darkest hour and then defeated sin, death, and the devil all for the sake of of winning those who had betrayed him, for the sake of those who went over to the enemy's side and fought the enemy's war, the soldier who daily dwells on that reality, that soldier, his heart will not grow cold. This soldier's love and devotion will only grow stronger. This soldier will go into battle without heed to his own life because his king became his brother and fought and died.
for him. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The King who became our friend, brother, and Savior, He is coming. We patiently wait for the day that God has appointed to send Jesus back to this world in triumphal entry. The thought of our great God causes Paul to break into words of praise. Looking at verse 15, we're, we wait to, for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, speaking of God, will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our God is not just any God, especially not like anything the Greeks and Ephesus worshipped. Full of flaws, injustice, and able to be dethroned, that's what men worship and create for themselves. Our God is the blessed God. In Him is found pure joy and happiness. He lacks nothing and He offers every good thing to His people. He is the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which means there is no competing deity or ruler who can stand before Him or oppose Him. Any rebellion in our God's realm is allowed to exist another moment only because He ordains it. There are no rogue agents, no equals, no competitors, no rebels outside his reign. He speaks, and all creation bows to his sovereign will. Paul goes on to say he alone has immortality. Immortality means to never not be, the state of always being. All humans have immortality in the sense that we will never cease to be. But neither angels nor humans have immortality like God does. He has neither beginning nor end. Angels and humans were created. Our God just was. In fact, it is illogical to put God within the box of time because our God created time itself. Our God dwells, moving forward in what Paul says here, our God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. The scriptures often use the language of God appearing to man. I think of how God spoke out of the burning bush or appeared in a cloud or in a pillar of fire. Most of all, I think of how Moses looked on God's back as God passed by the cleft in the rock causing Moses' own face to shine with a remnant of the glory of God. Moses then had to veil his face because the people of Israel couldn't stand to look upon even the remnant of God's glory on, his, on Moses' face. 
All these events truly did happen, and God did appear to his people, but no one has ever set eyes on the unveiled glory of God. Out of love for creation, God veils his glory so that we do not die in his presence. The ultimate example of this is how Christ Jesus veiled his glory so that he could be born, live among us, and die in our place. But do not be deceived by the veil. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot be approached by the creation unless God chooses to veil his glory out of love for what he has made. To this God, our God, Paul says, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This brings us to the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. The final phrase in the entire letter is this. Grace be with you. Although Paul is writing specifically to Timothy, he intended this letter to be read by all the believers in Ephesus. So he writes the final you in the Greek in the plural form, which could be rendered, Grace be with you all. Know for certain that God has used his servant Paul to write this letter to all Christians who would read its pages and seek to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. As we strive together to do this as his church, Paul blesses us and says, Grace be with you all, or literally, may the unmerited favor and blessing of God be with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this letter that you have given to your church. Lord, I pray that as we walk out of here today, that you would not allow us to walk out unchanged. Lord, there are so many, so many battles to be fought in our own hearts. And there are so many opportunities for us to proclaim your name even though it might be frightening, inconvenient, might, might even feel a little embarrassing in the moment, yet, Lord, I pray that we, as the people of God, would not, never be ashamed of you, that we would confess you and proclaim you and your redemption for this world, that our neighbors would know that we're that guy who can't stop talking about your word, your love, Jesus Christ and the redemption that he offers to all men. I pray that you would do that. Please help us, Lord, in, in our fear, in our weakness. And as Moses said, he, he felt as if he could not speak. He did not know what to say or how to say it. Yet, Lord, I pray that the God who made our mouths and made our hearts gave us mind minds to think, and gave us words so we could communicate that that God, our God, that you would help us as we seek to speak your words in our own homes, confidence and courage, and that that would spill out into our neighborhoods and into this city that we are called to represent you to. We love you, Father. Amen.